The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Unless that was wrong, let's try that again. Romans chapter 2. Don't you wish it was Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 2. Take the 1 off the 12 and we'll get there. Romans chapter 2. I was asked this week, how long do you think it's going to take you to get through Romans? And I said, until we finish. So I'm not exactly sure. Is anyone in a hurry? Come on. Really? Yeah, good. Very good. This is a, this is a lifetime joy for me, uh, the book of Romans is. I, it's kind of a rite of passage for a pastor and a preacher. It's the apex of Christian doctrine. It's the definition of gospel truth. And as you can look up on the screen, you'll see that we have that, um, that, lyric, that uh, graphic we've been using about a clock. And we've talked about the fact that uh, Romans is like a clock. It, uh, it has all the gears of the gospel, and you can see through and understand all the inner workings of gospel truth and theology. But at the end of the day, it just tells time. It's simplicity and it's complexity all at the same time. Today we're going to look at the problem that the Jews give us an example for of practicing what you preach. Follow along as I begin reading in Romans 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, Because of you, just as it is written. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in schools was officially and fundamentally illegal. In response, a self-proclaimed racist and senator from South Carolina named Strom Thurmond wrote the first draft of the Declaration of Constitutional Principles, also informally known as the Southern Manifesto. Wrote that in February and March of 1956. Now, the thrust of the manifesto was to keep black and white children separated in schools. He did not and was on record as saying that black and white children should have anything to do with one another, especially in education. Well, for decades, he led the charge for segregation as the face of racism. But while Thurman was directing the segregationist choir 
always carefully framed as a defense of individual liberty and freedom and the right of the people to govern themselves, there was a secret neither he or his admirers would ever keep secret long. His admirers and his detractors had wondered about this for years. After his death, it came to light that Thurmond had had an illegitimate child, and that child was black. Her name was Essie May, and her mother had been a 15-year-old maid named Carrie Butler working in the Thurmond household when she was impregnated by then a 23-year-old Strom. The event was immediately hushed up, complete with financial stipends sent, decades-long hush money paid off, uh, merged with the child support for a daughter shipped up north to live in Pennsylvania. Now, for the record, he loved this girl, and she honored him. Six months after the death of Thurman, you'll remember the SMA, Washington Williams, then 78 years old, publicly revealed that she was Strom Thurman's daughter. Now, in the 70s, to be fair, Thurman did hire black staff, but his reputation had been cemented by history by that point. You say, why tell us that story? It's common knowledge to those of us, at least in my generation. Most people only know Strom Thurman as the one who held the longest filibuster in history, 24 hours. Why bring that up? Because really, Strom Thurman represents such a living and vital illustration of abject hypocrisy. Saying that the races should be separated and segregated while also having a child with another race. Now, those of us who are in the church of Jesus Christ, we understand there is no race. Heaven will be full of every tribe and color and tongue and race and everything. This, there is no Jew or Gentile, black, white, yellow, purple, orange, whatever it is in the kingdom of God. But few things are as troubling as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy where you look on the outside and preach on the outside and say on the outside a certain standard that doesn't match the flow and the direction of your life. We all hate it. Few things are as troubling as it. And we're an expert. Each of us are experts in dialing in and identifying hypocrisy in others, aren't we? Very good. High acumen in finding the hypocrisy in other hypocrites. Can I suggest to you that you wake up and look at a hypocrite in the mirror every day? And the quicker we understand that, the quicker will be the solving of that hypocrisy by gospel truth. I think it's fair to say that the wonder of Christian conversion is the transformation of hypocrites, isn't it? And yet the ever-present struggle and fight for Christian authenticity is a fight against hypocrisy. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to hypocrisy. Not only did he confront it, he also dealt with it. I, just, I can't resist looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a very interesting insight into the Apostle's heart. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Ekakeo, the Greek, is cease to do good. We do not stop doing good. Then verse 2, 2 Corinthians 4, 2, he says, But we... 
those in leadership, apostles, the spiritual leaders at Corinth, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adultering the word of God, but by a manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's a, a Christian manifesto against hypocrisy. He says, I understand that we all have these hidden closets, these inner places of shame in our life, and Christian trajectory is to move away from those shameful things, committing ourselves to every man's conscience so that we are on the outside what we are on the inside, and we are on the inside what we purport to be on the outside. Paul struggled with that. You can read Philippians Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, he always struggled with making sure he was externally what he was made to be by the gospel internally. That gives me hope. If the apostle Paul could struggle with putting aside the things of shame in the inner man, I understand that in my own experience. Now back to Romans 2. Paul's been arguing in chapter 2, strangely and interestingly, against Jews. Now, this isn't the whole Jewish race. These are the religious Jews in Paul's day, the same religious leadership structure that Jesus had confronted over and over and over. His primary accusation against these Jewish leaders was what? You hypocrites. He's now reached the apex, as we've been studying through chapter 2, of this argument in the case against the Jews that he began back in chapter 2, verse 1. You remember where we began that. You have no excuse. Now that's built on the conclusion of chapter 1. Chapter 1 was Paul's laying out the argument that the Gentiles are indeed condemned by God because of their hearts and their actions. The Jews would say, well, we know that that's paganism, that's heathenism, that's the Gentiles, but we, as he unfolds these, these arguments verse by verse in chapter 2. We have all these privileges as Jews. We aren't like those rascal Gentiles who are condemned by God. We are the honored, favored people of God. Paul says, actually, you don't have any excuse when it comes to the judgment of God. The momentum of this passage was generated, by the way, back in verse 13, where Paul provides the simple principle that it's not the hearers of the law that are just, but it's the doers of the law that are justified. Those are words, very important words we'll look at in chapter 3 and 4 that mean saved. James picks this up verbatim and says that you don't want to be a hearer of the law who deludes himself, but a doer of the law who's authentic in his faith. Now, Paul, the apostle, shows that the privileges and the prerogatives, the blessings of being Jewish, actually only served to aggravate their condemnation if they failed to apply the privileges and the blessings they were given. In the passage before us, it raises two, two simple questions. These are questions that we're going to ask of the Jews through Paul's eyes. These are questions that he intends for all of us to look at in our own hearts. Two questions to the Jews that probe spiritual authenticity. He asked them two questions, and in looking at his challenging of the Jews, we can look also as a mirror of our own souls, because the same two questions he asks them ought to be asked of each of us who claim to know Christ. Two questions to the Jews that probe spiritual 
authenticity. The first is in verses 17 to 20. Do you prize what you possess? Do you prize what you have? Do you prize what you possess? He outlines in these first few verses of this passage uh, the things that the Jews possessed, the things that the Jews had because they were Jewish. He says, do you prize them? Do, Do they make any difference in your life? The first thing he turns to is divine privileges. Do you prize your divine privileges? Look at the first phrase in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, stop right there. He's been talking about the Jews since chapter 2, verse 1. But this is the first time he uses the term Jew. He did that on purpose. He was being a little bit nebulous, so they would kind of be wooed into his understanding and begin wondering, is he talking about us? And actually he was, somewhat like Nathan confronted David. He tells him the story, and David says, oh, this is what should happen. And then at the end, Nathan says, actually, David, this is about you. Well, Paul's been outlining this issue of externalism versus internalism, this issue of spiritual hypocrisy, and then he finally, by verse 17, says, I'm talking to you, those who are Jewish. The designation, uh, the term Jew was first used in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 6, first time it was used. It was a simple term to refer to the Hebrews who were the sons of Abraham, inheritors of the promise that the... Uh, the Messiah would come through the bloodline of Abraham, bless the whole world, but would be the Jewish Savior and Messiah first and foremost. The name Jew came to be a source of pride. It's still a source of pride for those who are Jewish. They represented the the privileges they had, that they enjoyed the blessings they had of being the people of God. Now, this was not anything new where they were assuming that because they were who they were and were born in the family that they were and they had the sign of the circumcision, that they, that they were somehow special. Look over for a moment at Galatians chapter 2. This, this bears us looking at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. As we're turning there, this is remarkable having been in uh, Italy, and we'll be talking about that more tonight, and seeing the, the veneration of the Pope... And they say, we don't believe that Peter was the first pope. Well, isn't it interesting that and the pope is supposed to be infallible, not ever having made a mistake, that the first pope in their world is forever known in Galatians 2 as teaching a heretical position on the gospel. Just for a footnote. But when Cephas, verse 11, Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. Paul says, I got in his face. I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw, hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. He was afraid the Jews would think he was a Gentile lover. The rest of the Jews joined him in, here's our word again, what? Hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was carried away by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, wow. First Pope, not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I just find that a little bit humorous. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how 
is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He was telling them, you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Verse 15, so important. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Do you see the mindset of the Jew at that time? We're not really sinners. I mean, the Gentiles and the heathen and the pagan, they're sinners, but we're Jews. We're blessed by God. Nevertheless, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul will explain that in the next two chapters of Romans, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified, justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's really the apologetic that Paul gives against the wrong view, the, notion, the, the wrong notions the Jews had at that day of the law. The law was never intended to justify. The law was never intended to save people. The law was intended by God to be an expression of salvation, not a way to get salvation. It was sanctifying grace, not justifying grace, as we've been studying in the book of Deuteronomy. Back to Romans 2. So not only did the Jews at this time enjoy the designation Jew, which they had incredible privilege because of, and in which they boasted, Paul gives them a short list of these things that they prided themselves in and were only external in their commitment to. Look at this list. He says in verse, back in verse 15, and you rely upon the law. They love the law. They love the law so much that they would put it in little leather pouches, hang it from their, their, their heads and their wrists. But it was only a superstitious commitment. And boast in God. Wow. You boast in God. Now, a study, any study of the, the term and the idea of boasting in the Bible is a very interesting term because we are told at the same time, don't boast but boast. Boast but don't boast. You say, well, what does that mean? I think we get a great idea of this in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. You know this. You may know the song that sings this. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. If you're wise and smart, don't be proud about that. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. It's basically speaking of financial wealth. If, you, if you've been blessed, if you're mighty in the eyes of the community, don't boast in that. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. Wait a minute. Let not these people boast, but let him boast. I love this passage because it tells us we're all natural braggers. You're going to boast in something. Just talk to someone long enough and you'll find out what they pride themselves in and about because boasting inevitably comes from the human tongue. But let him who boasts, you're going to boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. It's a good thing to boast in God. But the boasting that Paul is talking about here is really different than what was going on in Jeremiah 9. You understand this, by the way, by looking down at verse 23. Look down at verse 23. You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? You're boasting that you have the law, that you have nice Torahs, you have a nice scroll, you have a nice Bible. 
but it's in your hand, it's not in your heart. These hypocrites were boasting that they knew God. But they weren't boasting like a Christian is to boast. I know God. I want you to know him too. They were saying, I know God and you can't because you're not Jewish. As Joseph Allen says, the hypocrite desires holiness only as his own bridge to heaven. He doesn't desire holiness so that everyone can be invited into grace. He goes on in verse 18, and you know, the, the Greek is, you know the will, not his will. It's implied it's his will. You know the will. You know God's will, what he expects, what he desires, what he has mandated. And he goes on, not only knowing this, and approve the things that are essential. You approve things that you think are right and disapprove things that you think are wrong. Being instructed out of the law. Your theology was pretty good on the outside, very simply, they had appointed themselves judges, are you ready for this, alongside God. Their idea was God is a judge and they're sitting as the choir behind God, dealing out and and meting out judgment with God because they were right and everyone else was wrong. They hadn't prized the privileges they possessed. They were something they possessed and bragged about not something that got into their lives and made a difference in their hearts. The Jews also didn't prize, secondly, their prerogatives. Their prerogatives. A prerogative is a right. It's a privilege. It's, it's limited, limited to a specific person or persons of a particular category. A prerogative is something that you hold as special because of who you are. They had those, but they did not prize them as they should. Look at verse 19. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. They were intended to be a guide to the blind. A guide, though, who didn't keep people blind and guiding them around. A guide who helped eyes become open because of the truth of God. You're confident that everyone should follow you, he says. And you're a light to those in darkness. Now, these prerogatives, by the way, were intended by God for the Jewish nation. But not so that the glory would be pointed at them, but so the glory would be pointed at God. He even goes on, verse 20, a corrector of the foolish. You have the book of Proverbs. You can correct foolish people. You can identify fools. I love the indictment here. And a teacher of the immature. You're happy to tell people, oh, if you would only grow up in the knowledge of God, you would hope that they would say that you would be like God, but they said then you would be like like us. Having, verse 20, the incarnation, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Where do they have the embodiment of knowledge and truth? Well, there's a double entendre going there. They were given that in the person of Christ, but they also had had the living word of God in the Torah for generations. Listen to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 8, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of the Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. 
That was the intention of God in giving the Jews the law. Listen to that again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, the intention of the kingdom of God is that men will grasp the garment of a Jew. They'll actually grab their togas, their cloaks. Please don't leave me. And they'll say, let us go with you. Why? For we have heard that God is with you. The idea of God giving the Jews these special privileges, these special prerogatives, was they would, they would know the hand of God, they would love the hand of God, they would grasp the hand of God, they would serve the hand of God, and they would reach out and have, with another hand, an evangelistic outreach to people and build relationships with, with the, the Gentiles, and they would pull them together. But instead, they wanted to be the go-between. They wanted to be a kingdom of priests, not like Christians. They wanted to be the only way people could go through God because they were proud of their Jewishness. The Jews had so much of God's wind in their sails, but they became arrogant, judgmental. They became condescending in their position. And instead of saying, oh, that you were like God, they easily said, oh, that you were like me. Paul says, do you prize what you possess? Do you know your privilege? God gave Abraham the promise, your heirs and children of the promise. God intended for people to walk around grabbing your clothes saying, we want to know you because you know God. Do you understand your privilege? Do you understand your prerogative? That was just an introduction to a second question. Not only do you prize what you possess, but Paul next asks, do you practice what you preach? Oh, this gets painful. This is the exposure of hypocrisy. Do you practice what you preach? We all know that phrase, do you practice what you preach? It's an intuitive pronouncement. that There should be a matching and commensurate relationship between internal convictions and external living, right? Oh, I know that you know this standard. I know you say you should do this, but do you practice this? It's a fundamental issue that Paul has addressed from Romans chapter 2, verse 1. So he now identifies two issues he wants to address as he asks them if they practice what they preach. The first is this, the hypocrisy of a double standard. Do you have a double standard, he says? Do you have, do you live by, one standard, and expect others to hold another standard. He now dials in on the fact that they preached a very good message, but they didn't live it. They were hypocrites. He begins with a series of five questions that leaves no wiggle room for these Jews. He says first, verse 21, You, therefore, who teach another... Stop right there. The Jews had the synagogue. The synagogue was a teaching institution. Understand that the Jewish synagogue was way different than the pagan temple. In the pagan temple, you came and you either involved yourself in pagan prostitution with a temple prostitute or you gave a sacrifice and you walked away. No one went to the temple of Diana and learned of the temple of Diana's didactic teaching. It was all superstition. No one went to, the, to the, uh, the pantheon and heard sermons from all the gods or about all the gods. It was only the Jewish religion at that time that was pedagogical, that was teaching, that, that you came to the synagogue and learned the Torah. 
He says, you, therefore, who teach another. That's good that you teach. Do you not teach yourselves? Ouch. Parents, it's so easy to find the direct correlation for us, isn't it? We ever teach our kids things that we don't live by? I will never forget as long as I live. Student, when I was a high school pastor many years ago, a student came in and said, I want to talk to you about my dad and his salvation. I said, really? I thought his dad was a pretty sharp guy. I said, why? He says, because my dad tells me what to do, what not to do, what to watch and not watch. And I've caught my dad watching things on television that he would never let me watch. Paul is saying, in effect, to them, the same thing to say this. Does, does the standard for viewing change after the younger children go to bed? Let's keep going before this gets too convicting. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Now, Paul's asking questions that he, he intends for them to be indicted by, so we don't know the specifics of this. But the Jews in Rome to to whom he was writing and the Jews that he was addressing must have had an issue with theft. Now, you say, well, that's that's odd because they were the the higher ones. They were the, the, um, uh, especially in the the culture in Jerusalem, they were the, there were pagans and Gentiles in and around Israel and Jerusalem. They were the ones of the highest standard. How in the world were they stealers? Well, all you have to do is look at Zacchaeus, right? Extortion. Overcharging. They had the same issues that you and I do. I mean, this is finding the application here for us is not hard. Cheating on taxes, that's stealing. I don't like paying taxes either. But it's the law, and Paul says in Romans 13, obey the law. Now, don't pay any more than you have to, by the way. Do you steal? Do you have issues of theft in your own life, Paul asks, while at the same time yelling at the top of your lungs that no one should steal? He goes on, verse 22. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? We know they did. The orphan population was very high in the first century. Well, it's easy to say, don't commit adultery. Jesus, though, remember what he said in Matthew 5? If you've looked at a woman or a man in your heart with lust, you have become culpable of the sin of adultery before God. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? We don't know what this is an exact reference to, but something was going on probably related to meat. You hate idols. You say you shouldn't eat meat offered to idols. It's likely that they were then underhandedly on the black market, getting good deals on that meat while telling everyone they shouldn't do that very thing. Verse 23, do you boast in the law? Well, we know they did. Through your breaking the law, do you honor dishonor God? Oh, you love saying you have the law, but do you do the law? Back to what he said earlier. It's not the hearers of the word that are just, but the doers of the word. Bottom line is the Jews had a double standard. One standard for themselves and another standard for those who are pagans and maybe even 
those in the community. They lived an inner, back to Paul, they lived an inner life of shame. They had a standard that they lived at that wasn't projected from their teaching. Paul says that's hypocrisy. Having a double standard, few things undermine spiritual effect, the wonder of evangelism, spiritual authenticity, than a double standard. I've told some of you before, my my favorite illustration that I heard when I was a high schooler at a camp, it's a ridiculous little illustration, but it has served me for multiple decades. I had a youth speaker who said, your goal in life as a Christian is to be a pot pie and not a TV dinner. Be a TV dinner and not a pot pie. Let me say it that way. No, be a pot pie, not a TV dinner. Got to get it right. And the point is, in a TV dinner... Some of you are young people don't even know what that is. Uh, don't put those in the microwave. Um, a TV dinner is a little uh, tray with you know corn and the brownie. The, the corn always gets in the brownie somehow. The brownie and then the green beans and then the meatloaf or some semblance of meat product. And it's uh, they're, they're little walls that keep it all separated, right? The idea is to keep everything separate. He said, don't live like that. Don't don't have a life at school, a life at home, a life at your job, a life at church. Don't have your life segmented, but be a pot pie. And the idea was in a pot pie, every taste should be the same. You get a taste of everything. It's consistent. You know, that's a silly little illustration, but man, does it work. Are you different at work than at church? Are you different at church than home? Are you different with the kids awake than you are with the kids asleep? Are you consistent? That was what Paul was, was trying to press with these, these Jews. Do you have a single standard or a double standard? Do you live by the standard you preach? And then lastly, he looks at the tragedy of a corrupt testimony. When he's asking them if they practice what they preached, he says, do you understand the tragedy of not doing that, the tragedy of a corrupt testimony. Verse 24. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 5 here. He says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Where is it written? Isaiah 52, verse 5. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, Those who rule over them how." And my name is continually blasphemed all the day. He's saying, by the way, the way you're acting, people aren't saying that's about you. They're saying that's about me. Why? Because you've said you belong to me. Very simple point, isn't it? People are expecting He's saying to the Jews, people are expecting that if you have the law, you know the law, you know God's will, you understand who God is. They're supposed to be, as Zechariah says, following you around, holding on to your cloak, saying, you know God, we want to know you. Instead of doing that, you're acting just like them. Just like them. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1, where he started this argument. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself, for you judge, for you who judge practice the same things. Do you see what he said and where he's going? You're telling people they're wrong for the things that you think and do yourself. You have a double standard, and it's corrupting your testimony. 
Boy, people can see through a double standard pretty quickly. Very quickly. Parents, your kids can see a double standard. They can smell it a mile away and they can see it. Can I just ask a little footnote on that about our parents? Do, do our children have the right and the permission to confront us on our standards? I hope you've granted that to your children. I hope you haven't done the shut up and do as I say and not as I do speech. That was Jews. Wow. He sets it up. He's going to have one more section at the end of chapter 2 on externalism versus internalism. And then the first 10 or 11 verses in verse chapter 3, he's going to deal with this some more. But we're, we're caught in the, the place in Romans where Paul's confronting the Jews, but he also, listen to his argument, listen to what he does. Very important to see his thinking. He doesn't even identify them as Jews until verse 17. Why? Because these principles that they had are universal principles. They're not the only ones who do these kind of things. Have you seen yourself in the mirror of this passage? This is not uniquely Jewish. That's why he waits so long to tell them. He wants them to be a little bit ambushed by saying, oh, you're talking to us? But before that ambush, all of us would be able to say, yep, that's me. Definitely, definitely me. These principles can easily take root and residence in our hearts as well. They already have. Let me ask you, do you prize what you possess? Do you prize what you possess? You say, what do I possess? Well, let's start with the same place he started. You have God's word. You don't just have the law and the prophets, the Torah, the Old Testament. You have the complete law and word of God. I mean, just think about this. You have everything God intended to say to this world in a book. You, you have a copy of it. Multiple copies. I've looked around. Some of you, you're looking at your copy on your phone for crying out loud. How privileged are you simply to have the word of God? But remember, those to whom much is given what? Much is required. Do you find yourself more easily using God's word to judge the world and to judge others and to be an expert on morality and to know right and wrong more than you can wield the sword in your own soul? Jews did. Boy, I can. It's no secret. Have you been watching the news in the last two weeks? I have this, this kind of intuitive, there's, there's kind of the good guys and kind of the bad guys. I'm obviously on the good guys team. And when the bad guys get caught for doing bad things, I kind of like it. I'm sure it's just me. First of all, there are no good guys. We're all bad guys. And secondly, would I equally rejoice if the perceived good guys got caught at doing bad things as they do when the perceived bad guys got caught at doing bad things? Kind of exposes our double standard pretty quickly, doesn't it? Do you prize what you possess? Let me ask you this. Do you practice what you preach? Because what we preach is ultimately what we possess, which is salvation. If you possess salvation, if you know Christ and you preach that, are you practicing what you preach with reference to him? 
Oh, it's so easy to point to the hypocrisy of the IRS's corruption, right? But do you recognize your own corruption? Remember what we said at the beginning of Romans, if you don't like being called bad things, Romans is not for you and me. Paul continues to expose and say, look how bad it is. And then you'll say, hallelujah, what a savior. How about the testimony that you wield? The testimony to the world, the testimony to your wife, the testimony to your children, the testimony to your husband, the testimony to your schoolmates, to your neighbors. What is your testimony? Paul says at the end of this argument that because you say you belong to God, you should act like that. And when you don't, you defame God himself. How are we doing in our marriages? I mean, let's face it. Our spouses, I know Kim, she knows me. She, I, I, I can't do much to, to, to fake her out. Our spouses know us. Do they respect us? Is our testimony strong at home within our marriages? How about our work, work ethic? You work with people all day long, day in and day out. Do they see you as someone who's got unique and, and, and different values and a different set of moral standards than they do, but can they trace that line back to your faith and relationship in Christ? Our honesty. Man, students, you will, if you didn't this year, I promise you, I know it's summer, you will have the opportunity next year if you're in a, in a classroom setting to cheat. You're going to have that opportunity. Someone wants to share that, and they, cheaters love other cheaters to join in cheating with them because it makes them feel less culpable by their cheating. Are you honest? Are you rule-keeping? Are you the example of what's expected or the exception? Even the care about their souls. The Jews... We're supposed to have people yanking on their togas saying, show us your God. You know God, I want to know you. Do people want to know you because you know God? Or do we, like the Jews, want people to know and love us because we are so special in our sight? Thomas Watson, probably the most understandable of all the Puritans, he said this, the snow covers many a dunghill. A snowy white profession covers many a foul heart. The sins of professors are more odious. Thistles are bad in a field, but worse in a garden. The sins of the wicked anger God, and then he says this, but the sins of professing Christians grieve God. I was thinking about this passage, and as I was looking at it, studying it, meditating on it all week, my mind just kept being magnetized to revelation. This, just, this simple verse, simple reality, simple observation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church at Sardis write this, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Jesus says this, I know your deeds that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. That's the same indictment made on the church 
that Paul was making about the Jews. Exact same assessment, exact same evaluation. You act like you're alive, but you're dead. You're different on the outside than you are on the inside. Now, here's the grace of God. He even turns the screw tighter in the remaining part of this chapter, talking about the need for our hearts to be circumcised, not just the flesh, to be keepers of the law, not just possessors of the law. question is this. If these Jews weren't really saved in a Jewish sense, if I can say it that way, are Christians who do the same thing really Christians? Many will say to me, we've said it over and over, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know you know God? He who does the will of my Father loves the Father, Jesus said in the upper room discourse. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Second, 1 John 2, 3. Jesus says, I know your deeds. He knows. No hypocrite can ever stand before the throne of Jesus and say, but I did this, and I did that, and I went there, and I didn't go there, and I watched this, but I didn't watch that. And he'll say, I know your deeds. You looked alive, but you're dead. This passage lands us at a position that pastors have to come to as their expositors moving through the text, where sometimes you have to evangelize the church. If you're not, you're new here or you're You've been watching the download and, and you don't know anything about Christ or Christianity. There, thank you for being here, for being a part of the sermon. But we hope that you'll repent and receive Christ, believe the gospel. But this passage actually turns a spotlight on us. One of the things that makes me most terrified, probably more than anything else, as I pray for our body, as I pray for you, as I pray for this church, as I go through the list of people's names and pray for you individually, that any of you would show up at the judgment unconverted like those people in Matthew 7, but convinced of yourself that you are I can't imagine a worse reality than to show up at the judgment expecting heaven and find hell. How do you know the difference? Let me ask you two questions. Do you prize what you possess? And do you practice what you preach? That was Paul's evaluation. You know the gospel. Jesus being God lived a perfectly righteous life, storing up all righteousness in him so he could transfer that to us, being obedient to the point of death, even death as a criminal on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God. We sang it, Aaron, thank you for those songs. We sang it so clearly. He took the wrath for me so I wouldn't have to take it from God. Substitute for me. And then if there's any question about that, 
He was dead, how dead, buried dead, how dead, buried three days dead. And then he rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, making intercession for those who believe. That's, that is good news. If you believe that, do you act like it? Now, here's the question. Not perfectly. I don't. Just ask my sons. I don't do it perfectly, but I hope there's a progress. I hope there's a sorrow for sin, appreciation of his substitution, a longing for glory when we will be relieved from this body of sin and death. I just shudder to think that we have people who look good on the outside. Here's the problem with hypocrisy is that some of us would never see through it. But Jesus says, I know your deeds. Be convicted by Paul. Test yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself to see that you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? If Christ is a part of your life, you're going to be a miserable sinner. When you sin, it's hard. I've told you before, my, my greatest assurance of my salvation is I can't get away with anything. A father disciplines the one he loves. Do you sense his loving discipline? If you have questions about that, our prayer room is going to be open to the right in a few moments, and we'd love to talk to you, pray with you about that. Father, this passage is so sharp. It's a part of your sword in our souls. Cause conviction to happen and souls to be appreciative of who you are, what they possess, what they practice, what they preach. And if there are any who don't know you, Lord, don't let them be deceived any longer. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church. Dot com. <laughs>